Buckle up. Welcome to Musicians and Beyond special multi-part series under the covers with Ernie Sheffaloo. Your hosts, John Sarabian and Mark Lahorn, are going to expose the history-making journey of this iconic figure and his contributions to the music and corporate world. It's always nice to be able to get a little, you know, light on everything and, and, and feeling good about it. And, and like I said, Musicians and Beyond is one of those vehicles that I really appreciate, John. You and Mark are doing a, just a great job with the editing and stuff and allowing me to do this, man. I mean, yeah. it's I'm really excited about of the future and what we're doing and and who knows maybe because of this show or other stuff that i'm doing or goldmine magazine some new group will discover me and go hey you know that guy did some pretty cool stuff i always loved his stuff let's get him to do our new album right you know before computers you had to have a skill you had to be able to in my industry you had to be able to pick up and pencils and draw something or color it or imagine it and create it you don't have to do that anymore, man. If you knew how to use a program, you could just do all this stuff and boom, it looks like artwork. Right. I have a very a very good friend that used to work with me, owns one of the largest movie poster design companies in the business. And I was over there, I don't know, a year or two ago, uh, and he, he employs like three or 400 people. I mean, he really built this company. Wow. And I was looking at this poster, and I forget the name of the movie, but the main graphic was that statue of Jesus in Brazil. Oh yeah, yeah. This yeah. movie that came out a couple of years ago, and it was this amazing illustration. And I said to him, "I mean, who did this illustration?" He said, "That's not an illustration. It's just a bunch of images that we put together and did all this stuff with them on the computer to change them and put them together in a thing." And there's, and it, but it looked like art, you know. So illustrators, they're like type houses. Mm-hmm. Okay, there was a time when type houses were everywhere, and now every computer has its own type house. You know, it has its own Photoshop. It has its own retouchers. Used to, if we wanted to retouch something, we'd have to go to a retoucher who specialized airbrushing and all that. Now they just clone it and do this thing, and it takes no time at all. You know, so that I think that at least in my industry, and I'm sure I'm not the only industry, but I'm sure that you know it's kind of replacing that human element with you know. I mean, and I've I've heard from other people that just this guy I'm doing a movie poster for. He. Um, he produced it, directed it, started it. It's a really good film. And uh, he went to this place that just does indie films because he's going to do it in the festivals and stuff. And he said, it, you know, they, they gave me three or four different things to look at, but none of them, they all fell a little bit short. They all fell, they just didn't have, it was missing something and they didn't know what it was. And I, I you know, it's, it's, it's the emotional connection that you create with what you do to reach other people. to have them respond especially with short attention spans today you know you got no chance with doing something you know that is is not captivating and immediately i I don't think anything can replace the human touch no it really can't and they've realized that in music you see where they got so refined with music and digital and all that stuff and people started going back the other way they missed the crackles and pops on records and you know they just it it wasn't anybody could sound great if you could get into a recording studio and they can do anything with your voice you know so it's all kind of like the ones that that got the uh, uh, grammy and they had to give it back Oh, oh, Millie Vanilli? Millie Vanilli, yeah. Millie Vanilli, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those poor guys, you know, I felt really sorry for them. But they they, they really had the moves. They just didn't have the chops, you know. Right. But so. that stuff still happens today. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Not all. 
Yeah. No, no time. There's no time to do it the other way, the old way. That's that takes too long, costs too much money. Yeah. You know, and and, and you can't get results fast enough. You right. know, I mean, or whatever. You know, it just. I don't know. The world is it definitely changing, and I hope eventually it'll change back for the better. Yeah. Ernie, question but, for you: When when or, you first started Pacific Ioneer, and and you look at the time that when was the first time that the computer started impacting your business, and it first started to evolve to that stage? Around that's what funny, Mark, because nobody's ever asked me that question. But it's funny. I do remember it. I remember when we were. It was in the mid '80s, probably '83, early '80s. And the Macintoshes came out, those yeah. little computers the box, with the yeah. little tiny <laughs> screen, you know, and Nestle was our biggest client. And they had started bringing them in and they really sort of demanded that their vendors knew it. And so luckily we had a girl who was really good at it. And we actually lended a hand to Nestle and a couple other companies on how to work and, you know, make these things work with email and stuff. I mean, it was that primitive. But I remember in 1983, we got a Mac and the little one with the little screen and it was amazing we could and what we thought we would do is we could save money on setting type instead of going to a type house we could set type on it and then we could print it out but the problem was printers were like three or four thousand dollars black and white printers matrix printers it was crazy you know now they give you the printer for free if you buy the ink right you know <laughs> it's one of those things but i remember we used to we tried we had this uh, waterbed client and we were going to make some money on saving for the copyright. We didn't have to send it to a type house. And we were doing this brochure and we needed to get it done. So we set all the type in the computer. And there was a place in Santa Monica that you could rent the printer by the hour. Okay. And so we took our little floppy disks down there and put them in and printed it all out. The only problem was that it was a matrix printer. So the type was kind of digitized. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was just a disaster. I mean, we ended up having to order from a type house anyway, and it costed us cost us more because we had to pay for it. But you know, and so I'll, I'll never forget that. And then, and then my partner at the time was really—he was a musician, a keyboard player, a singer, and he was very technical. You know, so he got into it. He figured out we were able to do certain things with it, but it really didn't start impacting our business until a few years later when it got more sophisticated yeah. and you could do more things, you know, and you didn't have to use a type house anymore. Didn't have to use a film house anymore. You could make your own film. You just you know, give them the disc. You know, we had shuttles in those days. There were these things that just you stuck in at each station, you could stick this shuttle into something that was connected to the computer and it would download the stuff. And if we, and so, you know, Mark is working on it here. We put the shuttle in there, download it, and we take it over here to John's station and we put it in that shuttle thing and he converts it over. And that's how you couldn't send stuff back and forth, you know, the way yeah. you can today. I mean, now you can take huge files and we transfer yeah, them. It's amazing. And, it's amazing what you can do now. I mean, we're talking to you. Yeah. You know, yeah. From, yeah. From I mean, Maryland I remember floppy disks we had floppy disks oh, you know yeah, i mean that's, that, that's was, that was the state of the art you yeah. know yeah. and now it's a joke uh, yeah. but uh yeah it, it really did you know luckily luckily i was able to just like today i can stay relevant today but it's like john henry versus the steel driving yeah. machine you remember that story with john henry when he was a, a steel driving man and he was on the railroad Ernie, we, we mentioned Pacific Iron Air. That is your business, um, yeah. your graphic design business. It's been in play since 1972. Yeah. Um, and there's quite a story 
Yeah. How did this uh, whole thing start? And can, can you kind of give us a timeline of, you know, the start, the different things you've gone through and where you are today and what you see in the future? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, again, we talked about it last show when uh, the guy that we were working for, I was his creative director, my partner who was then his head of sales and vice president and his head of production because he would sell production. He would buy stickers. He would buy board printing and sell it to the record companies. They weren't buying direct. So the three of us decided that we didn't want to work for him anymore. We start our own company. That was a, sort of the uh, last couple of months of 1971. By this time, I had already designed the well, uh, the um, School's Out album for Alice Cooper and the Cheech and Chong album, Big Bamboo, for them. And before that, I had done, you know, Grand Funk Railroad and a few other ones, Quincy Jones. And, and so, you know, we decided that his vice president was going to go back to New York. I was going to go to work for his competitor, a company called AGI. And, and so we decided that we would start our own company. We would start Pacific Ioneer because no matter who we work for, it would always be the same in the end. You know, the door would close. Our future would be decided by people beyond us that would then tell us what we needed to do. And we could either comply or quit. You know, I mean, right. So it was always going to end up the same. You know, we lose. So let's just do it the way we think we can do it. See if we can do it. Right. So we each put in $2,500 and that, that isn't a whole lot of money, not even back then to start a company. Uh, our third partner was in New York. He was, he kept the link because my partner, Tony, who was the head of sales uh, and I had some corporate clients that I was working for uh, in New York. We wanted to keep that, not lose that. So Lou Morris was the guy that was his head of production, but he had all the connections. There was a company, <laughs> this is a story that's never been told. Okay. So this is a first for musicians and beyond. Oh, let's hear it. Um, there was a company called Ivy Hill, and Ivy Hill is still around. They're, they were the largest board printer in the country, and they had three locations, one in uh, Long Island, one in Terre Haute, and one in California. The guy that we worked for was using them pretty much all the time to do his packaging, to do his board packaging that we, I was designing and he was selling to the record companies. They hated him, okay, like most people that were around him, as, as long as he needed you, you were relevant. When he didn't need you anymore, you were history. So they were always getting blamed. There was a big uh, controversy with the way the uh, Rolling Stones sticky finger package was fabricated. And it was really, he blamed, Craig blamed it all on Ivy Hill. It's all Ivy Hill's problem. They had this big blowout. So they didn't have any love between them, but they needed each other, you know? So... When they found out that I was leaving to join AGI, that Tony was going to go back to New York, and that Lou and I and Tony were leaving Craig Braun, there were two guys that owned the company, Lou Garlic and Murray Gordon, okay? And they were really amazing guys. They were real characters, like out of a movie. They had a cabana at the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel, right? So they found out because... The guy that was running Ivy Hill out here for them, Rusty Muir, was friends with Tony because we did a lot of printing with them and through Craig Braun. And he found out through Tony that Tony was going back to New York. I was going to go to work for AGI, who was also a competitor of theirs. AGI was a printer out of Chicago, okay, that was really pushing board packaging and moved out to California along with us. And they were whining and dining me to go to work for them. And I... It, Back up even more, when I did the Jesus Christ Superstar album, there was a guy named Dick Block, who was a salesman that I used to see all the time in uh, the creative director at, at Decca Records. 
Bill Levy, I used to see him in his in his waiting room all the time because he was constantly pitching Bill for work as AGI. And I remember it turned out he was my neighbor behind us in Brooklyn. And we socialized a little bit. And at one point I shared with him the original Jesus Christ Superstar configuration. I think I told you it was originally three albums. Okay. But because nobody knew who Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber were, and this very controversial <clears> piece <throat> was coming out, they cut it to two. But I had originally designed a board package that folded out into a crucifix. Okay. <laughs> It had wood grain on. I mean, it was beautiful. And all the lyrics were on it. And when it opened up, it was a crucifix. Okay. They didn't use that. We decided to put it all in a box. It was a little too aggressive. Again, nobody knew Jesus Christ Superstar. There were a lot of bets that it wasn't going to go anywhere because the Pope was condemning it. The church was saying, you're going to, it's a mortal sin if you buy it. I mean, it was crazy. And, um, and so I shared that comp. I had actually made a comp that had all the pieces in it and everything. And I shared that with Dick Block. Okay. So, I don't know, it was a couple of months later, I'm still in New York, and I see in Billboard magazine, Black Moses, the uh, Isaac Hayes album, and it's the configuration that I had created for Jesus Christ Superstar. No way. And so I called Dick Block up, and I said, hey, man, what's, you know, you took my design. Oh, yeah, man, I owe you one. I'm like, okay, all right, cool. <laughs> so cut two months later, I'm out here in California, fed up because I was on a three-month thing out here to if set up the art department and then go back and be the creative director in New York, in the New York office. And so Dick came out. And they were setting up a facility here. And he called me up and said, hey, you know, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, we're moving out here and I'd love to take you to lunch. OK, cool. No problem. So when he took me to lunch, it's it's like I said, I've never really told this before, but he took me to lunch and he said, well, where would you like to go? So I I knew there was this very expensive restaurant. So we went there and I ordered the most expensive thing on the list. I swear to God. And I, and I was, I don't drink, but I was drinking wine. So I ordered three or four glasses, the most expensive wine, right? So, and, and he's talking about how, you know, they're going to do this thing and they need a creative director and, you know, you could be the guy if you want, it's your job. And I, and I, so I ended that with uh, ordering dessert to take with me. Okay. A nice mousse. I didn't, I don't think I even ate it. I took it back and gave it to somebody else, but the most expensive stuff, right? And he's smiling and I'm smiling and I said, well, let me think about it. I got to talk to Bonnie. Let me think about it. We're out here. You know, we still have our apartment in New York because I was supposed to go back. And uh, so a couple of days go by and he calls me again. He goes, well, have you, you know, have you had a chance to think about it? And I said, yeah. I said, why don't we go to dinner? <laughs> okay, let's go to dinner. So I went to La Dome, okay, which, I mean, was even more expensive than the lunch place, right? So again, I, I get the most steak, cute, you know. Amazing. I didn't even, the price was too many zeros, but I ordered that, ordered more wine, all this stuff, right? And he's talking about it. And he said, I'd really like to take you over after dinner. We've rented a facility over in Larchmont, this beautiful old Victorian house. And I'd like to show you the place and show you your office. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, that's great. Let's go. So we went over there and he showed me. I mean, it was a really, really nice hole with all the gingerbread. I mean, it was great. And, and Piedmont area was a very upscale. Larchmont Piedmont was really upscale area of Los Angeles uh, in that area. And anyway, so he's showing me all this stuff. And, and afterwards I said, you know, uh, he said, so what do you think? Do you want to come to work for us? And I said, you know what, Dick, I've given it a lot of thought and Tony and I have decided we're going to start our own company and now we're even. And I left. <laughs> you got your free meals. I, like I got it. my two free meals. I got my, I got my pound of flesh. <laughs> and you got your yeah. last laugh. 
Yeah, I got my. Yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, that was really instrumental in us deciding, I mean, to do this thing together. And then Craig Braun had a French girlfriend. Her name was Lucette. Okay, and she was very sweet. She loved me. She loved Tony. She didn't like him so much anymore because he broke up with her because he doesn't have any kind of steady relationship with anybody. And while he's having a, a, a relationship, he's cheating and doing all this other stuff because he's bicoastal. And and so she was really putting the, you know, you guys really should start your own company. You don't need him. You know, you, you should really. And we ended up going to Hawaii, and she went with us. I, I forget. We went with a group called Good Thunder. They were signed to Shelter Records, Leon Russell's label. And Leon was playing, and they were opening for him in Maui, in Hawaii, in the main island. And so we all went over there, and uh, Lu- Lucette was with us. And that was right at the time when we had just started Pacific Ioneer. But she was real instrumental in doing that. It was January 1st, 1972. We started the company. Wow. And we had a, a Tony had moved out of the apartment so bonnie could move here with me because uh, craig would only rent an apartment for tony and i bonnie was in uh, san jose so she came here full time tony moved into a little cottage up in the hills of hollywood right above uh, a kitty corner from Capitol Rec. it was beautiful you couldn't even see the house from the ground because there's all these trees and it was a great place so we moved in there with him i moved out of the apartment we were rented for us and we moved in there with him and that's where we started pacific Ioneer. you know the kitchen table was was his office when we weren't eating the the coffee table was my office you know bonnie was on the phone on the couch and she answered the calls and there was the three of us and we started it and then we hired a production artist a kid named dean marion who was amazing with tools so he could do all the mechanicals i mean i was doing the design the layouts the ideas and then the mechanicals as well and it it was good because you know you need to know that stuff even though coming up in new york i never had to do it i sort of hopped over that we had talked about you know i was able to like go in the army as a private and within just a year or so i'm already a a colonel and i skipped over all the other ranks because they it was more about what i could deliver as a concept and, and and oversee and stuff so i became a creative director and and uh and and so we needed a production artist because the work was now coming in we were captain beyond was one of the first groups that embraced us aside from alice i think i told you we had done uh, the schools out album but they I, this is another first, I liberated the comp that I had created when I left. So they couldn't figure out how to make it work. They couldn't, because if you know the package, it's a school desk. And then there's panels that pop Mm -hmm. out from the bottom and a thing that goes over and locks it in. So it'll stand up like a school desk. And then they couldn't figure out how the hell to do it. Tom Wilkes is now Craig's partner and they couldn't figure it out, you know, and I, gee, I don't know, you know, what happened, you know, with it. I mean, I, I don't know. It was there when I left, I, you know, I don't know, you know, cause Craig was adamant. He wouldn't talk to me. He would talk to Tony cause he and Tony were good friends. And even though Tony had left with me, he would still have that line of communication so a bit. That was your and first case of, of company espionage, corporate espionage. Yeah, right well, there. and here's the odd thing, okay? Even though Tony and I were partners for 14 and a half years, he had a complete falling out with Craig in the beginning. They all, everybody went their own ways. And then after Tony and I split up after 14 and a half years, guess what? He moved back to New York and went to work for Ivy Hill, where Craig was working as well. <laughs> so... so they- Timeline this for me, Ernie, real quick, just, just, you know, because we started the other day or we've talked about it a few times, the mescaline trip where the idea was formed, then you, you take $2,500, you each form that and that the business is formed. 
timeline between there, that $2,500 uh, corporation, and then the day you start working and, and, well, and you have the office up and running. It's interesting because that was the part that I was getting to at the end of the story with Ivy Hill. Ivy Hill, Lou Garlic and Murray Gordon reached out to Tony and said, look, before you guys leave and split and everything, come meet with us at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Right. So we go there and there's these two guys, man, you know, with the face. They're they're just wonderful guys. And they have this cabana and they tell us, look, why don't you guys start your company? Let us invest in your company. OK, we'll give you money every month to help finance your company because you have a limited budget. Tony was very open with them and they were they, he had dealt with them for years, even before I joined. Okay, he was already dealing with them. And so they really liked him. He, Tony was a very smart guy, good looking, graduated college at 16. I mean, he, he was a great salesman. Okay, and a, a good looking too. So that really helped. Anyway, uh, they said, let us help you guys. All you need to do in return is when you design an album cover, make sure it's on board. Okay, make sure that you can convince the group that Ivy Hill should be the company that prints it. Okay, because we were the we were the link. They were the printer. Craig was the link for them to the groups, to the record companies, to the art directors at record companies. Mm -hmm. We offered that same link, only we weren't. We would appreciate the opportunity as opposed to having pushed their face in it every time they turn around, which is characteristic of you know yeah <laughs> way they were treated. So you know, I mean, and I, I hate I hated him for years, and then. You know, uh, he was another reason why I was able to raise the game on in my own part, because I learned how to take hatred and turn it into motivation. OK, turn it into creative fuel. OK, yeah. that it's the weirdest thing. And I've never really hated anybody like that. Yeah. But I was able to early on because we were on our own now and we didn't have an umbrella as weak as it was. We didn't have an umbrella. It was yeah. us. We didn't have a roadmap, nothing to tell us how we were going to go to get from A to B. And we were on our own. And, and I needed to really raise my game. And I learned how to create that hatred and convert it into creative fuel. And that was the start of it. And then when we started to grow and guys like Bill Garland and Drew Struzan and Carl Ramsey and Ingrid Hinkey and Joe Garnett joined the company, I had to become even better. I, these are some heavy duty artists. OK, they could sit they could sit and look at you and just draw you like this and it would be like looking in a mirror. It was like that. It was amazing. I had never experienced <clears throat> that kind of illustrative ability. You know, and I always thought I was an illustrator and stuff, but I was nothing compared to these guys. But what I had to do was stop fooling myself into thinking that I was an illustrator and find comfort in them and the ability that they had and give them direction. And I couldn't go to them with something that was weak. They would tell me right away, that's no good. We did something like that before. So they were all we were all pushing each other. That was later on down the road. In the beginning, as you can see behind me, I designed the Pacific Ironier logo, that P logo. And, uh, you know, a, a guy named Dave Willardson that went on to become a really, even to this day, an incredible illustrator, very, very famous. And he did the airbrushing. I did the line art and I needed an airbrush and I didn't know how to do an airbrush. So I went to him. He had just graduated Art Center. He was running an office in his basement of this big house in Pasadena. I met with him and I said, you know, I don't have a lot of money, but, you know, would you do this for me? So he did it for $50. 
He did the airbrushing on that. Today, I mean, the guy gets, I mean, he does a lot of the Disney stuff, a lot of the new Disney stuff. He does that. Did an incredible series of ads for um, Fender guitars, animated kind of thing, just beautiful work. And we shared a show together uh, at the Forest Lawn Museum not long back. But, you know, great guy. We're still really good friends. But And then what you see, uh, the, the Pacific Ironier truck. I've always been a, an automotive guy, so I bought a 46 Chevy panel truck. <laughs> And we put Pacific Ironier on the side of it, you know, and and we got clients. What I would do, we got Sizzler, Sizzler Steakhouses. Their headquarters was in L.A. And so we took the truck and parked it there in their parking lot in the morning. We were there early so we could get in the parking lot and be close to the front of the building. So everybody that went in the building saw that truck. And sure enough, man, we got work from that creative director. He called us back. He said, I saw your truck. Come and get it. You'll get some work. I promise. And we did a lot of work for Sizzler. So, I mean, that truck really, really helped. And plus, you got to remember California. It's a car community. Absolutely. You know, to this day, I have I just restored a 67 Chevy Corvette Stingray ground up. It's beautiful. And I have a 46. I have a 40 Ford pickup truck that took me 17 years and a couple hundred thousand dollars in this truck. But they're beautiful. I'm an automotive guy. Yeah, you know, well, we know that from the beginning of the story uh, when you were out with uh, Bonnie and cruising the streets and when you you were first hanging out in the car. Um, Just for our audience listening, you know, you've mentioned a few things sort of from like a uh, nomenclature standpoint. And for those of us that might not know, as a designer and as a graphic illustrator, when when you talk about the mechanicals and when you talk about the things that were set up, what are you talking about there? What like you you say you set the mechanicals? What is that that you're doing when when you come a mechanical that? is like if you use an analogy of building a house, it's the framing before you start putting the sheetrock on and the rest of it. It's it's a way of taking the illustration or photography and type and hand lettering or whatever and put it all on a the way it used to be done was on a piece of illustration board and everything was laid out with red lines for bleed, blue lines for cropping, black crop marks. And you it was 12 and 3 eighths by 12 and 3 eighths with an eighth inch spine. And you had overlays that you glued a, a stat. You made a stat for position of the size you wanted something. You glued it down on an overlay. You put the type and all that became like the foundation and the basic well, the, the skeleton of how you needed to look in the end. And that went to a filmmaker who then separated everything, whether it was an illustration or a photograph or it was copy, and would put it all together in film. They'd make film. They'd make black film, yellow film, red film, and blue film. Okay? Oh. And then each one of those pieces of film would be put together to make the individual piece. And from that film, they take that film and make metal plates that they would then put on a printing press and print. So it was the basic way to get what you wanted, the size you wanted, the look you wanted, everything dropping out and surprinting and stuff the way you wanted it to look in the end. That was, it was critical that that mechanical be, be done Exact. So it's like the that formatting was, process, so to speak, in today's computer world. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. And and they do mechanicals on the computer now. It's all done yeah. in the computer. It's basically the same process, only it's done differently. Okay, it's done digitally. And the funny thing is, is that when we moved a few times, and we were for a long time on uh, La Cienega Boulevard, we had this whole top 
floor of this building and we decided we bought a fourplex and we were going to move the office into this fourplex because i was paying rent tony was paying rent we were paying rent for the company and it seemed like it would be better if we owned a place and at least we'd have something to show for it at the end of the year so we bought a fourplex and we were moving all our stuff into the fourplex and we didn't have room for all the mechanicals i filled three dumpsters you know those big green dumpsters yeah i filled three of them <clears throat> with mechanicals mechanicals that today on ebay or on on the internet i could sell for a lot of money i was just you, thinking that as you were saying it. i'm like yeah, wow yeah because, all of yeah, that because, stuff i mean yeah stuff that would be history. the mechanical that made the finished piece so you yeah. have the mechanical you have the artwork and all that then you have the mechanical and then you have the finished piece so you have it's a three-step process so you'd have all three steps. Yeah. I kept a few. I have a couple, but honestly, there were hundreds that we threw away. Yeah. You know, just didn't have any yeah, room. But, but you know, who the I hell would have known you know, back then? You know, yeah. That it would well, be there was no. A... I'm talking 1983. Computers yeah, they... were just starting to come in, and there was no internet. Not really. The government had it, but civilians didn't. You know, I mean, the the public wasn't like it is today, where you just you know, yeah. everybody these. These guys that I was talking about earlier, that we, you know, I sent them my resume and said, oh, by the way, send me your resume. So I know what you're, you know, you know what I'm about. I know what you're about. And uh, this way we can understand the value that each of us brings to this project. And I sent them my bio, which is a typed out three sheets of all the stuff. They referred me to LinkedIn, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, that's that's how it's done today. You know, I'm right. I'm old school. I'm, I actually have a printed resume that is on paper or it's now an email that I can send you, but it's a printed it's type. They you go to you go to LinkedIn, you know, and it's like, OK, you know, I mean, it, it just seems like they're missing something. You know, right. and, it, and it is like well, we talked about earlier. It's that it's emotional connection. Emotional connection, the personal human, touch. The, that the, personal touch, that human love. touch. It is. It, it really is missing. And it's getting further. And I feel like I'm on the dock watching the ship go off into the horizon right. and not regretting anything that I've done. <laughs> I don't really want to be on that ship because I don't need to be, you know. And, you know, it's it's kind of weird, I guess, to think that way. But. I'm still relevant. I keep myself relevant. And part of it is because I can still do sketches. And the idea, the idea is important. Without the idea, like these guys, they don't have the idea. They're looking to me for the idea. Once I give them the idea, then I'm vulnerable. They can just take it and run with it. I've had that happen. You know, I mean, oh, you know, yeah, we're all friends here. We're going to do this thing. And yeah, what do you think? How, how are you feeling about this? Well, you know, I think it could be this or it could be that. And the next thing you know, you're out and they're doing your idea. Right. And that, that can, happened to you a bunch of times. Oh, yeah. Oh, a lot. And, and, you know, I remember when I was working on Madison Avenue, there was a sign because there were a bunch of agencies in the building and stuff and other companies and stock companies and stuff. And there was a sign in the elevator that said, be careful about be careful about talking about your idea because then it becomes their idea. And it's true. You know, I mean, people talk in elevators, other people listening, whatever, you know, sharing an idea with somebody like I did with Dick Block. And the next thing you know, it's done for Black Moses and Isaac Hayes. And I had nothing to do with it. He just took my idea, you know, and it's, there's no remorse on any of that stuff. And it's done even more today. They call it a tribute. I've had that happen just twice last year with Alice Cooper, Welcome mm -hmm. My Nightmares. Some guy, McFadden or whatever his name was, ripped it off, changed it a bit. And, and it's the same lettering and everything.
I had no recourse. Foo Fighters did it with the DGs, the salute, the salute to the BGs thing. They took my lettering and changed the B to a G terribly, and I can't do anything about it. Right. And look at if I go at- if I go take a stanza from one of their songs, I'm in court and having my ass sued left and right. 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 So that must be a real kick in the ass to see. You know, all the hard work and the love and everything that you put into it, the time, the effort. And now yeah. someone just comes and, go, you know, switches something yeah. quick and t- tries yeah. to take all the credit. And it's always worse. It, it, it's not even like they do a good job at it and make it better. It, it's right. terrible, you know. And it's happened a lot with the Bee Gees with that lettering where they'll do something for the Bee Gees, a tour or something, and they'll, cha- they'll try and letter other words that I have because I only did those letters. That's all I ever did. I never did an alphabet. I created that font. I only did those letters. And I've had plenty of uh, people requesting, you know, ty- you know, people who sell type, you know, because you can buy fonts. You can buy a, a font that, you know, that I designed. But who the hell has time to sit there and design a font, upper and lowercase, and all the numbers and stuff? I don't have time to do that. Right. So I just concentrated on doing it for what I needed. But I've seen, like I said, especially the Beatles and some Alice Cooper stuff, and they just – it always falls short. You know, they say the imitation is the highest form of flattery. I think it's, I think it's just, a rip. I don't know. It's a, it's a ripoff. Is it what is it a ripoff. Is. It is a ripoff. There's my partner, Tony, but that's Tony and I, I'm in the gorilla mask uh, in Pacific Ioneer. That's our, uh, that was our office in the crossroads of the world. Yeah. And then one of the first things that we did for Pacific Ioneer is we took the back page of billboard magazine. We okay. took an ad, Okay, and we made it look like the front cover. We did an ad. We could make anything we want on that ad. Well, they freaked out. Okay, they said there's no way you're gonna have what they what we finally ended up doing. And I don't know how well you can see it is the front cover of Billboard magazine was straight up. They made us run our ad upside down and put advertisement on it and put you know and and what we did was it turned out that the captain beyond album was on the legitimate cover of billboard that week and we did that cover so we're represented on the real cover and then the back covers all this other stuff that we did the doors album some phony articles that we wrote that are funny i mean and and that got a lot of attention they were afraid that if it were on the back cover of this at the same upright position as the front cover that people stuck it in the racks to sell at newsstands they put the back cover up front you know it looked, it looked just like the front cover it, i don't know how well yeah you can it, see it, it probably gave it more attention oh because it, it was upside oh, yeah. down oh, yeah so so oh, they tried no one they tried one yeah. thing and it actually backfired in the face and it got yeah, more attention. And, and so what it was, was there was a, on the ad, there was a, a line that said, you know, reach out to us at this phone number. So they call a phone number and they get this recording of Mark Volman and Howard Kalen doing this Nicky Nicky Hoy kind of Hawaiian song and telling them if they really want a great album cover, you know, to leave their, leave their number and stuff. And they did. And then we sent them that poster, which is all the album covers. And it was uh, what we've done for others. We'd want to do for you. But uh, we promoted ourselves a lot. We, you know, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money, but the money that we spent, uh, we spent on promoting the company instead of each other. I mean, I you won't find out of 189 album covers that we did at Pacific Ioneer, you won't find one of them with my name on it. Not one. Yeah. And that was a big mistake now because now I've gone online and, and you know, Googled an album that we did and somebody else will take the creative direction credit. You know, Joe Smo. I, I never heard of this guy. I had nothing to do with the album, but he found a place where he could put his name in and did it and now he's the creative director. Crazy. Uh, they're like, 
pirates on the internet, man. They, you know, and it amazed me because a, a friend said, Hey, you know, you did this album and somebody else has got the design, the uh, creative director credit. And I'm saying, what are you talking about? Pacific Ironier gets the credit because we, we were into promoting the company rather than promoting each other. Right. Okay. That's a good way. That's a good way to do it. And it obviously worked. I think your yeah. best advertisement is, you know, your work itself because, yeah. you yeah, know, well, we, we used to have a portfolio, you know, of all this stuff. And, and we, for the first two or three years, we used that portfolio and then we stopped using it because people were coming to us. We didn't have to, my, my partner who was a salesman, he just answered the phone. People were coming over, people were talking, they want us to t- talk to us and have a meeting, you know, and it was, it was really kind of nice. And, and a big part of that was Alice Cooper and Chef Gordon. They would refer us to everybody. We became, That's I mean, huge. I, I read a thing where Alice said, you know, yeah, we loved, you know, working with Pacific Ironier because they were crazier than we were. Right. And we were. I mean, we'd show them <laughs> stuff that would scare the hell out of them, you know, and then they'd come around and they'd love it and add to it. And I mean, it was it was a great working experience with them, you know, I mean, because there was so much to work with. Well, you guys you know? came up with some crazy ass ideas. And I think the controversy that, you know, might have been sparked through those ideas was, you know, a positive influence. Oh, well, that was Shep Gordon. Shep knew how to take something negative and turn it into a positive. Yeah. He was like the P.T. Barnum of the 70s in the music business. You know, and then he started films. He did Kiss of the Spider Woman. He formed a movie company with Denny Blackwell from uh, Island Records. Mm-hmm. And then Alive, Shep had Alive Records. And so they've Island Alive became a film company. And they did Kiss of the Spider Woman and a few other movies and they did they did, they did a movie uh well it was actually a poster to promote the tour and it was g gordon liddy and timothy leary and g gordon liddy and timothy leary went on tour together a speaking engagement and g gordon liddy was the da that arrested the acid guy timothy leary okay timothy leary had the castellia <laughs> foundation in upstate new york and g gordon liddy was the da that arrested him and so they were like arch enemies for years. And then they ended up being friends and doing a tour together called Return Engagement. You know, and Alan Rudolph did the direction and stuff. And, you know, it was really neat. We did the, the poster for the tour and it did really well. You know, they'd both be live on stage. I think they ended up making a movie out of it, too. But they would be live on stage talking and about that whole Castalia Foundation and him going to jail and all the rest of it. It's fine, kind of funny. It's like Tony and Craig going back to work for Ivy Hill. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it was it was a very weird experience, and and thankful to them, to Ivy Hill, that I don't think we would have been able to do it without their help. I mean, it was it was hard. I mean, we were selling album covers for anywhere between fifteen hundred dollars and three thousand dollars. That's all in illustration. Black Sabbath, okay. We sold that album with the illustrations, the design, the lettering that I did that they changed later, mechanicals, everything for I think thirty five hundred dollars. Wow. Yeah. What do you think something yeah. like that is worth today? Well, those two pieces, the front and back cover, are 300000 Wow. Yeah. It's... Well, I mean, there's a lot of provenance with them, along with being at the, the Smithsonian for 18 months. They were illustrated by Drew Struzan, who is the most collected illustrator in the world. There's a couple of guys out there that want them real bad. So I found that the best uh, place to be in any kind of negotiation is to have the ability to say no. Right. And I have and, the ability to say no. Yeah, I know people, what they're worth. And people you know? people want something they can't have, so they'll yeah that always might, that might always. Uh, bump the. Price I get a lot there. of requests for the for the different covers. Welcome, my nightmares. Another one yep. that Drew did. It's an oil painting, a thirty by forty oil painting. Oh, 
it's beautiful, you know, and, uh, you know, that one's people want as well. But, you know, and, and then other people say, well, go sell it to the group. Go tell the group you got, the, you know, the group wants it for free. They think they own it. You know, I got into a big argument with Maurice White from Earth, Wind and Fire. We did that logo for them on Open Your Eyes, that cover we did. And we did this beautiful Earth, Wind and Fire logo. Drew did it. Yeah. And he wanted it. And I said, well, buy it. He said, no, we own it. I said, yeah, I think again, you don't own it. You only had the right to use it. On the back of that painting is a sticker that says this pro- this this art is exclusive property of Pacific Ironier. Yeah. So, and now I found out, I think I had maybe mentioned to you that after 30 years, after 35 years, all the rights go back to the creator. So I co-created every piece that's in my collection, every piece that we ever did. I co-created a lot of it. I created myself, all these pieces with all these different illustrators and a lot of pieces on my own without anybody else. So I own all of it and it's great. I mean, it's, uh, I'm very, very lucky to be able to have hung on to as much of it as I have. You know, I gave away a lot of it. I lost, there was a flood in my parents' basement years oh, no. ago. And I lost a lot of pieces down there, a lot of Struzans. I mean, but, you know, I, I, again, like learning how to convert hatred into creative fuel, I learned to stop regretting what I don't have and appreciating what I do have. Yeah, it's a good you way know, to look at like, it. It's a good way to look at it. So, well, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's a lesson you're learning in life, you know. Yeah. You just have to ease up. Otherwise, you go nuts and go crazy and stress will kill you. That, so is, I don't true. Need that is true. Ernie, you've been at this for a long time. You've been recognized all over the world for different pieces and in, uh, in the art world as well. What were some of your highlights of your awards and trophies throughout your career? You know, it's so funny because I watched a part of the Grammys, not a lot of it because it's really stupid. But back <laughs> in the day when we did ads yes. that were yep. more head on than that. Uh, but you'll see, I mean, when we went to the Grammys uh, the first year in 1972, we I had an eye out of my sh- jacket and Tony had an ear. Okay, and and we were like dressed in suits and that got a lot of attention. I mean, we were very, very disruptive. You know, I mean, nobody did that. It wasn't even being televised in those days. This is 1972. Uh, It wasn't even being televised. It was at the Palladium, you know, so it wasn't a big thing. We rented a table for the group of Pacific Ironier people. And we had, you know, we had this great um, time there with, you know, and we kept the ear and the eye in our chest and it was, and we got some coverage when we walked in, they took pictures. The, the, uh, the Grammys had a little pamphlet that went out to everybody after the awards and sort of had highlights and who won what, and they had a picture of us, you know, the 1973 Grammys where we were nominated for billion dollar babies. We didn't win the first year with the eye and the ear. uh, We were nominated actually for two. We were nominated for $5 Shoes, which was an early punk band on the music scene. And we were nominated for Schools Out, which was sort of taken away from us or or me as it because it was best album cover design. And so it was sort of taken away from me and Tony, because Tony and I did it together. We sold it or we sold it to Shep Gordon. And, you know, it, it was kind of weird. We were nominated for two that year. Neither one won. The next year, we decided we were going to get more radical. And that's when we designed these balloon diver helmet things with the eye and the ear and the hair. You know, and that was because uh, uh, we had tuxedos and white gloves 
And, you know, and we walked in with Roberta Flack and, and they took all these pictures. It was really a, a great thing. But more than anything else, it was even though we never won, it was kind of neat because, you know, we got a chance to do that. Never got nominated again, even though some of the packages we did were better than the ones that we had gotten nominated for. So. Right. Just to be nominated is a huge, a huge honor. Uh, yeah, sure. It is. I mean, it, and, you know, I mean, it's I love being in the running. And for me, it doesn't matter. It's like the logo for the Stones. You know, it doesn't matter where Pache's came first and mine came second or mine came first and his came second. It doesn't matter. Being in the running says that you had a chance to be number one. And whose idea was it for the eye and ear? Well, what happened was we decided that we could go to the Grammys like everybody else. But I think I had said before, you know, Pacific Eye and Ear was a real disruptive kind of attitude that everything we did. Yeah, the, the more i learning about you guys, the more I'm finding that out. Yeah, yeah. We didn't really go... We're, and, and, and we carried that over from the record companies to the corporate world, too. What would you would consider in, that, in those days, it was called out of the box, you know, but today it's called disruptive. You know, you have to yell it from the mountain. You have to tell the story so that the next person that tells that story tells it even bigger. You know, for us to get those two nominations in the course of Pacific Iron Year, we got 25 gold albums, three Grammy nominations, a triple platinum album from Burton Cummings's tour, you know, we did for Dream of a Child. I mean, that was a lot. I mean, you know, that was, that was, but getting the Grammys, you know, was sort of a, it was a great way to start it, it because we were brand new. I mean, Pacific Ioneer started in 1972, January 1. We had only had three months of bonding, Tony and I, before we started Pacific Ioneer with Lou Morris. There was the three of us. So, you know, we were kind of now on our own was us. Right. And so getting those Grammy nominations gave us that reassurance, not only that we were doing good work, but we were working together, man. It was like under under the covers, you know, True. <laughs> it, True. it really was like that, you know. Yeah. So, so, anyway. so Ernie, what is your thoughts for the future? Do you think there's a, a chance for coming home with the Grammy? For me? Yeah. No. And what we did with the eye, the helmet and stuff, I mean, that was considered disruptive and radical and you know my god and today i mean i want these people are crazy man i mean all the costumes and the just the it's all so staged it's all so hollywood well yeah the times have definitely changed and you know you've been at this for 50 years and it seems that your story is really getting out there now there's a lot of interest from all kinds of people and hopefully we'll see some kind of a big documentary on you because what you have is, you know, an amazing story. So, and it's been like that all along until now. It's taken 50 years, okay? It's taken 50 years, but in the end, you know, truth wins out, truth will set you free. And I'm getting so much positive feedback from all the people on Facebook and all these other Twitter and LinkedIn. I mean, it's just amazing. And, you know, Musicians and Beyond, uh, Ernie's Corner, you know, some of the other stuff that's happening, you know, uh, is just amazing. And it, it, it's helping people understand the guys at the show that I'm doing with them. Uh, they're, they're talking about doing the, the documentary. And you and I had talked about them. Yeah. Uh, and they you know, they refer to it as the missing link. I'm kind of like the missing link. It really is. A lot of stuff. I mean, it's it's the stuff that you have in your head is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's got to be out there forever because yeah. it's well, it's quite a story. Musicians and beyond are, are ensuring that. 
Well, you know, we you're do, helping. We're doing our best. Season. We're doing yeah, well, our best. Well, you're doing a, you're doing a great job. Thank you. And yeah, Joyce's, you know. I, I've been watching Joyce's uh, clips. She's yeah, a, she's good, and she yeah. educates. You know, and and as to you, you're giving us the ability to talk about how all this happened, and 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 people need to know because every new generation will be listening and looking at this. This will be there forever. Yeah, and that's what we yeah. want. We that's want what we want forever. exactly. And I appreciate you and Mark and you know, musicians and beyond giving me the opportunity to do it. It's awesome. True. So you've been going um, strong since 1972. Yeah. You haven't taken any breaks. No, not really. I once went seven years without uh, working seven days a week without really taking a paycheck for six or seven months at a time yeah. in different look, you know, cause when you own a company, it's like having a child. Okay. And when the child is healthy, that's great. And then the child gets sick and you have to be there. You have to take care of it. You have to sacrifice Instead of doing this with the money, you need to go buy medicine for the child. Okay, so my employees never went without a check. Okay, but I went many, and so did my partner, Tony. You know, I mean, that's just what you do. And those are the sacrifices you make. And, I, you know, I've been, and when Pacific Ioneer ended in 14 and a half years later, 1984, um, it was kind of devastating. But uh, for about a year, my partner and I had been growing apart. It was a lot of, you know, it was, we were growing apart. It's like a group. You know, they're so tight, they're like a family. He was like my brother, you know, and the three of us, him and I and Bonnie, we were, it was us against the world, you know, and because after for three months, we ended up buying the third partner out. He didn't understand the difference between being an employee and being an employer. And it's really hard when, you know, my partner would spend hours with him on the phone every week trying to tell him what he needed to do, aside from just buying production. You know, we needed him to sell. We needed him and he just couldn't do it. He couldn't make, so we bought him out. After I think three months, and then it was just Tony and I for the the remainder of the you know that, that tenure. Right. And when when it was over, it was it was kind of messed up, but it was okay because we had we had our office in the fourplex. We were very tight with all our neighbors, and it was like the little rascals. Well, let's start a company. Okay. Well, you know, Ernie, you make the signs, and and you know, Saul, you go over here and make the sales, and Howard, you go, you know, do sales over there. And and it was so there was a four or five neighbors, and we started David Hale, which was a company uh, that we named uh, because it sounded like Nathan Hale. Nathan Hale. So David Hale and people, it sounded familiar and people would say, oh yeah, I've heard of your company. Well, we were brand new, (laughs) you know? So that lasted about six years. And then the same thing happened again and again. And after the third partner, I realized that it wasn't really them. It was me. I was picking them. It's like being an abused partner. You get rid of the abuser, you get all cleaned up and go out and find another abuser. That's just what you do. And I did the same thing. And I guess it was because there was, I knew what was going to happen. There was no surprises. Mm-hmm. And it always ended up the same. Right. You know, and I, here I would be telling my clients, you know, if you keep doing the same stuff the same way, you can't expect anything to change. Right. And I'm doing the same thing, you know. It takes a while to figure it out, but eventually I did. And, you know, Pacific Ioneer had a great, great run. We did 190, 189 album covers. And then I continued doing album covers and more corporate work started two more companies and about 11 years ago i decided you know no more partners you know i'm just going to do it myself you know and it's been great i love it i i take as much business as i want to take because now i need to have a life there's time that isn't for sale now that's a hard thing to do when you're small and you're trying to survive Mm -hmm. you got to take i always put it you take chicken shit and take make chicken salad out of Okay. And that was, I was constantly trying to do that. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, 
you know, so if it smells funny or looks funny, I don't even touch it. Right. If right. I can spend five minutes with somebody and know whether they're they're going to work out or not. Yeah. Well, you know, the company's I, still going strong. I mean, it, oh, yeah. everyone wants your work still. Yeah. Yeah. And, I'm know, very lucky. I'm very blessed. And the Internet has been a big part of that. People like yourself, you know, I'm seeing a spike in your shows that I post, you know, and and people are finding me. You know, I do Joyce's show. I do your show. I do this other guy. He's a photographer. He just asked me if I would do some shows with him. He has a blog. He started out selling his photography. Four, 14 years ago, he started it. Yeah, I mean, we talked. And sure, I'll talk a little bit about stuff because the more it's out there, the more people are going to find me. You Absolutely. Know? Thanks Absolutely. to you and, and, and the others that I'm working with, like Joyce. Yeah. It's been great. I love it. Yeah, you, you have know? a lot of people on your side. I mean, you're yeah. a great guy. You, you Iconic iconic pacific eye and air i mean it's yeah I, it's, a pacific eye and ear is you know it was on everything that we did that's why i decided to keep the company and especially now promoting prints and things like that people don't know who i am but they know the work right you know and and, and, and uh, you know everybody that's got the album turned over and says pacific eye and ear on it right so before you know, so before we go ernie um you know to all our listeners you can go to the pacific eye and air website and you can yeah. buy prints, but they're not just regular prints. They're from the original. Yeah, and, directly and that, from the originals. Yeah. And it's Pacific Eye and A-N-D, ear.com. So the and has to be spelled out. But yeah, Pacific Eye and ear.com. And the prints are really reasonable. I mean, you get a beautiful 12 by 18 print. You pick the ones you want. And it's like $35. Right. Plus that's, shipping. that's cheap for what you get. Oh, there's some people that hate me online that sell stuff like this and they'll sell, they'll start at like a hundred bucks, $150. And you I have, have a $150 print. I have a $300 print too, but, and I sell some of each, but the big seller is the $35 one because it's beautiful and it's got a thick stock. You know, I've got a great printmaker. I go there every time a print is ordered and we look at it and talk about it. I make sure that it's done. And it's like you said, it's made directly from the original. Yeah, and you'll autograph them in. Oh yeah, you I number them. Yeah, and, with the more expensive ones, they're numbered and signed, and come with a letter of authenticity. Yeah, uh, the thirty-five dollar prints, I'll just sign. Sometimes people want me to draw the Rolling Stones tongue on it, so I do because it's yeah. added value. It makes that print an original, okay? Because it's got an original drawing of the Stones tongue on it. Yeah. So you know, I, I do those quite a bit. You know, that, and yeah, thank great. you for that. I, I mean, I they, they make great gifts for, you know, yeah. someone that has everything. I mean, yeah, and you know, firsthand. I do know firsthand. Yeah. I, I did yeah. buy a couple of them and I gave them to some, uh, some of my very close friends and they were just blown away That's that they right. have well, an original, really you know, Rolling Stones tongue <laughs> or, uh, some yeah. of the other prints that I, that I purchased. But, um, yeah. so yeah, go to Pacific and check out uh, Ernie's store. And uh, you can just Google me too. If you Google, Google me, there's a bunch of stuff on there that you'll find videos, and, you know, other things that we've done. Yeah. You know, and again, I, I, you know, I really appreciate you letting me have this time to talk about it. You know, I mean, again, I, I you know, I'm, I keep trying to create history. You know, instead of becoming it. I mean, it's, it's something that I wrote a couple years ago, and it's so true. It resonates very heavily with me. And I've had people say, "Well, you are history." You've created history. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't want to keep on creating it, you know. And right. thanks to you and thanks to people out there that reach out to me, uh, I'll keep on creating it. Yeah, you yeah. no, we, uh, we're, we're, it's 
truly are honored to have someone like you. You're like I said before, you're a true history maker and you know your that. your story is going to be told forever. And, you know, we all want to be able to make a mark, leave a mark, you know. Kilroy was here, you know. I mean, Kilroy. I want to <clears throat> these things, the things that we do, the things that I've done, the stuff that, you know, each generation keeps rediscovering the music. That's a beautiful thing. It isn't like it was done and then it went away and nobody ever hears about it again. There's a lot of history that's like that. You know, but because it's music and because and films are the same way they keep every generation rediscovers them sees more in them and music works that same way and the images that we created it's not done like that anymore yeah. you know so it's it's history in a lot of ways and you know i mean i i think i told you i once saw an interview with dick cavett and um ted turner and they and cavett asked turner he said you've made it and lost it made it and lost it and you've done a lot of big things what's the smartest thing you ever did he said buying all those old movies from you know and starting turner movie classics because yeah. people love nostalgia they do they do, they do. you know yeah. and what i've done is nostalgia but it's nostalgia that every generation it becomes current again yeah, so you're taking the old and making it new and keeping it covered. Yes. I love it. Yeah. I love absolutely. it. Again, you are listening to Musicians and Beyond. This is a special series with Ernie Shefflew, and we are calling it Under the Covers. And we want to thank I love that name. You guys came up with that name. It was perfect. It's Isn't that the greatest? It's, it is. It very it really is. And, and you know, and we really are getting under the covers with you. Yeah. We're finding out Yeah, today we heard a few things that have never been told before. Yeah. I would call that breaking news. Yeah, well, I've got I've got a bunch of those. We'll yeah. talk about those. Yeah, we can't wait to hear more. We're looking forward to our next episode, and we want to thank you again, Ernie, for taking time out of your day and coming into our studio. And uh, sure, you know, I appreciate by way of Zoom it. And, it's my honor. Believe me, I, I totally appreciate you and Mark. And, you know, it's, you guys are wonderful, and you're really giving me an opportunity. I have a few champions like you in my life. Yeah. Ivor Levine is another one who was yeah. on a show with us. And, you know, I mean, he's just really, he's really something. You yeah, know? he's super talented. And you yeah, know, he before is. we go, he just, he just put out a article for our listeners um, on uh, Goldmine Magazine. It's a 20-page, unprecedented 20-page layout on Ernie and his story. And I'll tell you, yeah. you are not going to be disappointed. And Ivor really hits some yeah, amazing things. He and he talks. You know, that story was a 30-page story, and they cut it to 20. And, but when it goes online, they're going to be, I think, in a few weeks, it'll be online. And it'll have all 30 pages. Awesome. I can't wait so, to read yeah, what I haven't yeah. read yet. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's always you know, an adventure I'm, with Ernie Sheffaloo. Well, thank you. Ernie, uh, again, really, thank you for uh, for being our friend. I mean, I, I think we've... Yeah. We get a well, thank you here. for letting me be your friend. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm I really, I, I appreciate it. It's my honor, you know, and I appreciate you guys giving me the time, you know. It's our so. pleasure. Well, okay. thank, thank you very much, Ernie, and we are looking forward to the next episode. Me too.